This is the Sunday where Thanksgiving and the Advent meet and coincide. And uh, well, I will say, I hope that you and your family have had a wonderful time together of, of Thanksgiving, a time of reflection upon the many things to be thankful for, many things to thank the Lord Jesus for. Now, today's sermon is going to deal with hope, is going to deal with the expectancy of hope that lies upon the horizon. And I must say, even amongst the world conditions that we live in, and as I look around amongst civil unrest and uncertainty, maybe you are here this morning and need to be reminded that God ain't dead. Amen? God ain't dead. And I would like to think, when I am pressed with the scenario of the glass half empty, half full scenario, I would like to think that the cup that I drink from is four fingers deep. Meaning that a Christ follower should always should always have hope, even in turmoil, even in times of despair. It was the late R.C. Sproul who wrote these words, appropriate words, mind you. Dr. Sproul said this on hope. He said, hope is called the anchor of the soul, referencing Hebrews 6 and verse 19, because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish, saying, I wish such and such would take place, or I wish that would happen. Rather, hope is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. So we define hope almost simultaneously the same way that we would define faith. So today's sermon is entitled, Here Lies Hope. And again, this time of Thanksgiving, this time of Advent, a time of, that we reflect upon the greatest events in the history of the world. If you'll recall last week, I said that there are three great events in this one massive drama upon the landscape of history. We examine this, these greatest events in history history just very briefly last week in this unfolding drama. Number one would be the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, which entails what we entitle the incarnation, meaning that the incarnation is simply put, God the Son came in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. We must be very careful of how we use our terminology when we define Jesus' divinity and His humanity because they are intertwined in one essence and they cannot be separated. So we need to be very careful of how we define the incarnation. Simply put, God came to earth in the form of Jesus of Nazareth and was God-man. The second greatest part of this drama is the death of Jesus on the cruel and rugged cross, 
This cruel cross, as we mentioned last week, is an emblem of suffering and shame. We reflected on the old rugged cross, this sign and symbol and emblem of suffering and shame. And yet, at the same time, the cross becomes a light on the hill, a thing of beauty to behold. But how is the cross a thing of beauty? How is the old rugged cross an emblem of death and shame? How does it become a thing of beauty more than just a trinket that we wear around our neck that we have embroidered into our Bible? It becomes more than just a trinket. How is it beautiful? Well, Paul writing to the church of Ephesus said in chapter 2, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I am grateful because of the cross that I am not an enemy of God anymore. Amen? I'm glad that I am not an enemy of God anymore because of the cross. The Lord Jesus killed that hostility. No more at enmity with God. No more an enemy of God. That is unless you are dead in your sins. Now, the third greatest part of this event in all of history is that of the resurrection, the bodily, physical, uh, historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I consider to be the greatest event in the history of history, that God himself would come and robe himself in flesh, would die on the old rugged cross, experience this alienation from God the Father, the wrath being poured upon the Son, and yet overcoming that by the resurrection. What a beautiful picture that is. But before we dig into the resurrection, hopefully you'll come next week as we finish out the book of Mark. Thank the Lord we will, we will finish uh, Mark 16. And I say thank the Lord because hopefully we have finished it strong together. Come next week and we'll, we'll look at this resurrection. We'll deal with it next, uh, next, uh, next week, Lord willing. Now, many in the, of, the, of, of the people today in what you call the word of faith movement, would define what happened on the cross and what happened in the tomb a little bit different than what you and I would, would say. In fact, there is uh, those amongst the word of faith or what you might consider to be the prosperity gospel, and I have no shame in naming them from the pulpit. That would be people like Benny Hinn. That would be people like Creflo Dollar, uh, appropriately named, by the way. That would be people um, not only like... Uh, like Creflo Dollar, it would be like uh, Kenneth Copeland, and, and those type folks of the Word of Faith movement, uh, prosperity gospel, the name it, claim it. They would say that when Jesus was in the tomb, that he was also in hell being tormented by demons. He overcome hell and was saved. And I said to myself, after hearing some of this heresy, Jesus had to be saved? Of course, you know this is heresy and false teaching. At no point in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, at no point when the body was in the grave, 
Did the Lord Jesus at any time need to be saved in the essence of regeneration? So I will ask you if you will, with that out of the way, and as we appropriately look at what God's Word says, let's stand for the reading of the Word. Let's stand for the reading of the Word. Our Bibles turn to Mark chapter 15, as we will end at chapter 15 today. And our verses will be verse 42 through 47, a sermon that I have entitled, Here Lies Hope. And the word of the Lord said in verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that, we should, that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And there was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, who saw where he was laid. Lord, we ask you that you will bless the reading of this word to our heart and mind. Lord, we already know that it has been inspired. And so we pray that it will, um, it will have a lodging place in our, in our heart and mind that we might learn thereby. And uh, use the Holy, the, may the Holy Spirit guide us today as we travel through this text. Change us, conform us into the name and the person of Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Let's rewind just a touch. Last week, if you recall, we were transported through the horrific scene at Golgotha's Hill. A scene that is far more horrific than any horror movie that you would ever watch. It was said that the Romans at one point in one time in history had crucified 6,000 people in one day. A horrific scene. We are transported by the evangelist Mark to Golgotha's Hill. We stood under the shadow of the cross and we gazed upon the agonizing Son of God thereon. And under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the evangelist Mark moves us to a hill far away called Mount Calvary. We are face to face with Jesus, our Lord, who is stretched out upon the cross in agony and in pain. Our ear is tuned in to the Lord. His voice has captured our attention through Mark the Evangelist as our Lord gives a recollection of Psalm 22, verse 1, and cries out upon the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken, forsaken me? In the Aramaic and, and transcribed in the Greek by the hand of Mark into the English for us to understand what has happened at this point? 
that my sin has been cast upon the Son and the wrath of God the Father has been poured out on the Son. And this turning away is such a mystery that we must be very careful how we define this alienation. This turning away from God the Son or God the Father to the Son, we've got to be very very careful of how we tread these waters so we don't find ourselves in the deep hole of heresy or false teaching. It is a mystery in some regard. Some would say that God was totally separate from God the Son on the cross, but if that is the case, then there is a broken relationship between the triune Godhead. So in some way, there is a turning away from sin, but not a total separation or a total alienation. It has to do more with the wrath of God poured upon the Son. You'll notice at one point the Lord Jesus cries out upon the cross, calling out to God the Father, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then also saying, God, forgive them. For they know not what they do. So we do know there is an estrangement. There is a turning away of some sort of sin that was cast upon the Son. And in some regard it is still a mystery of all that transpired upon the cross. But what we do know is this. That the wrath of God was asserted upon the Son of God. And our Lord is stretched out between two sinners. And they hear our Lord Jesus quote from Psalm 22, and so do the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and those who misheard him. And they assumed that he was calling upon Elijah. That simply was not the case. They misheard the words of Jesus. They misinterpreted the words of Jesus. And when the Lord lays down His life in this fashion, the moment of our Lord's passing on the cross, we are transported to the temple scene where the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom, signifying that it is finished. God has done the work. There is no need for a high priest to step another foot in the Holy of Holies ever again. The high priest, Jesus, has finished the work of atonement. It is finished. There is something that is happening in the initial burying of our Lord and in this intermittent place of waiting for the resurrection. And that is where we find ourselves today in the text. So let's look together, beginning at verse 42, what I like to call God's perfect timing. God's perfect timing. When God seems to, to show up in those moments in our lives, and I know we've all had them. Well, we've been praying to the Lord for His intervention. And God shows up in a miraculous way. He answers a prayer. We have been pouring out on behalf of someone. We have been interceding. And God shows up at that perfect time. He might not answer it in all the ways that we think He will answer it. But at the very, at the very core of it, he, he gives us an abundant joy in Him and a peace in Him. God's perfect timing, verse 42 says, And then the evening had come since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before 
the Sabbath. Now, I will say this, that this verse enhances the truth that we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 10 and verse 18, that reads, no one takes my life. No one takes his life from him. He says this, Jesus says, no one takes it from me, his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. It could be two days from then. It could be three days from then. It could have been one hour. It could have been three hours. The point is this, that in God's perfect timing, the son laid down his own life. No one took it from him. He laid it down on his own accord. And even though Jesus Christ, the Bible explicitly shows that he suffered at the hands of sinful men, he is still master over life and death. Imagine, as Jesus hung on the cross and was in the tomb, our Lord was still over, master over life and death itself. Now, in order for a Hebrew to observe the Jewish law concerning the Sabbath, it was a day of preparation. That would be when they would get everything ready to observe the Sabbath. And since the Jewish Sabbath would have been on Saturday, this passage would indicate that our Lord Jesus died on Friday. Many of, many of us celebrate Good Friday. Uh, in fact, if, um, you know, uh, if you celebrate Good Friday, you might get out of school on Good Friday. At least I used to. Uh, but if you don't, get your wife to write a letter to the school and you get out on Good Friday in observance of these, this religious holiday. But it's more than just a holiday. It indicates that our Lord died on Friday, and if the Jewish Hebrew observers of the law were to observe the Sabbath, then any dead must be buried before sunset. They were supposed to have everything prepared. I want you to listen to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on that tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And you shall not defile your land that the Lord God has given you for an inheritance. So this is twofold. Number one, to prepare for the Sabbath. And secondly, to not defile the land, having a sinner hanging on the cross. Now therein lies this Markian irony. Irony from the hand of, of Mark. Because here is the one who created the land. The Bible calls the word, the logos, the reason for creation itself. Hanging on the cross. And he was seen as a person who defiled the land. The Bible tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. If you have a Bible and you don't mind writing in that, underline that. Make a note of that. Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It is interesting that this member of the Sanhedrin would stand up for the body of Jesus. Intercede. 
Mark tells us that he was a member of the council who was steadfast in looking for the kingdom, meaning he was steadfast in looking for Messiah. In fact, the gospel according to Matthew, verse 57 of chapter 27, he calls Joseph of Arimathea a disciple of Jesus. Secret or not, Joseph was a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Now, what makes Joseph so noteworthy in the gospel account is this, that he is stated as being bold or courageous to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. For a member of the Sanhedrin, for a member member of the council to be associated with a convict, a tyrant, a person who has committed treason, a sinner, unclean, was a huge step to take courage in. And so he is noteworthy of our attention this morning. The actions of Joseph of Arimathea teach us to make a bold stand for Jesus even if the rest of the world is against him. Now I ask myself this question. Now let me go ahead and lay out a disclaimer. All of the Bible is about Jesus, right? All of the Bible is about Christ. But on occasion, there are characters in the Bible that, who are sinners, just like we are, who give us a glimpse of a good characteristic to grab a hold on to. Here is a person who had not walked with Jesus. He had not walked closely with Him. Who was willing to stick his neck out for for Jesus. And I asked myself, okay, well, didn't he have at least 12 initial disciples who he had called to walk closely with him and to hear him? Didn't he have 12 disciples minus one now, Judas? Didn't he have 11 disciples now who would come by his side? Where were the disciples at to contend for the body of Jesus. It took a man who had not walked close to Jesus to contend for our Lord. I I will say this. uh, We need some people who will be like Joseph today. We need some men and women who will be willing to stand up for Jesus, even if the world will be mad at you. We need some people who will stand upon the solid rock that Jesus is is the only salvation Today, we need some men and women who will stand for Christ. See, here's the thing. We will get all mad. We will get bent out of shape. We will get flustered if somebody talks down about your favorite politician. I mean, we'll go to arms, won't we? But when someone attacks the person and character of Jesus, crickets. Maybe that's because people have adopted a political gospel instead of the true gospel. We need some people who will stand for Jesus. Politicians come and go. Sports figures come and go. Movie stars come and go. Idols come and go. But Jesus stands true forever and ever. Amen? Let me hear you. I want you to listen to some of these quotes from people who are attacking the church attacking the person of Jesus, who are attacking Christendom itself. And I'm just going to, I'll just have maybe three amongst many, a catalog of people who are against the Lord Jesus. 
But before I begin, full disclosure, these quotes are founded upon a faulty understanding of theology and scripture. And it is exactly what you would expect from a hostile unbeliever to say. This is what you would expect from a hostile unbelieving world to say to justify a tainted sinful lifestyle. All right? So these things are expected. All right. So going all the way back to the 17th century, going all the way back to the 17th century, philosopher Voltaire said this, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Therefore, he is attacking the sovereignty of God. He is attacking the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God. He is attacking the character of God. Church, will we let this type of mentality stand? Christopher Hitchens, who was considered to be the, uh, the fourth member of the atheistic Four Horsemen, who's passed away now, Christopher Hitchens, had these words to say, attacking yet again the sovereignty of God, the power of God, and the revelatory power of God, that God can disclose himself to humanity through his word. Listen to what Christopher Hitchens said. He said, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without Evidence, again, attacking the revelatory power of God that he can tell us exactly what he wants us to know about himself. Again, will we let these things stand without argument? Ernest Hemingway, you've heard the name. Ernest Hemingway, who I must say must have had his head in the clouds concerning this particular point. Listen carefully here. This is what Ernest Hemingway said. He said, all thinking men, all thinking men are atheists. And I will submit to you, and I know we're recording this, so this will go across social media and whatever avenue, but there are no such thing as atheists. Ernest Hemingway said, thinking men, all thinking men are atheists. And to that response, I would say, well, may I introduce you to men like philosopher par excellence, William Lane Craig. May I introduce you to the writings of pastor, theologian R.C. Sproul. May I introduce you to Jonathan Edwards, John Piper. May I introduce you to C.S. Lewis, etc., etc., etc. Just the tip of the iceberg. And the reason I mention that is because unless we are equipped and equipping with knowing the Word of God and how to demonstrate that our beliefs in Jesus are warranted and they are true, we will never be like Joseph. We will never be like Joseph of Arimathea here, one who will stand up for Jesus when it is difficult to do so. And by the way, Joseph is just an example because that is where we are in the text. There are many biblical figures who stood up for Jesus. You think of the disciples, the apostles who died a martyr's death. History is full of people who died for Christ. But we will never stand up if we are not in God's word, we are not knowing God's word, we are not fellowshipping with another, one with another, if we are not getting the food we need from God's word. Second, as we travel through the text, 
the seed of hope is planted. So here is hope. If you recall, the disciples of Jesus were scattered and they were not even at the scene to contend for the body of Jesus. We could say that John the beloved apostle was at the foot of the cross to visualize the crucifixion, but the disciples as a whole were scattered that it took a stranger to bury Jesus. But it also was a fulfillment of prophecy. As Jason read earlier from Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 in verse 9, this is what it says. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. And in his death, and although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This rich man is Joseph of Arimathea. A fulfillment of prophecy. Joseph came to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised in verse 44 to hear that he should have already died. And he summoned the centurion and he asked him if he was already dead. Now when a person was crucified, the person hanging on the cross was, normally would suffer for about two or three days. The reaction of Pilate is an, is an expected reaction since Jesus just lasted not, not even more than a day. So he's surprised. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now this might be the centurion that had been beneath the cross of, and heard the Lord speaking heard the Lord Jesus speaking. In fact, verse 39, this might be the very centurion that said, truly this is the Son of God, as recorded in Mark the Evangelist. But for Joseph of Arimathea to be the only one to contend for the body of Jesus is sad. Again, I ask myself, where were the disciples scattered? And Joseph... He bought a linen shroud and, and taking him down, took Jesus down. He wrapped him in this shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. His tomb. Joseph's own tomb. He rolled a stone against, it, against the entrance. Now, by the way, Joseph didn't roll this by himself. You're talking about a 2,000-pound stone. So people normally would help him roll that stone against this entrance. The body of Jesus was wrapped in this linen cloth brought by Joseph. And according to John 19, verse 39, there was a hundred pounds of spices brought by one Nicodemus. The spices were laid in the folds of that linen, laid in the creases and in the folds. And then it was bound around the body by strips of cloth. Think about it. We lit the candle of hope, which would signify the incarnation. and would also signify hope to come, right? Hope. So think about it in this way. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling, torn clothes, lying in a manger at his birth and is now wrapped in burial cloth. You talk about humility. You talk about being humbled, a humbled, suffering servant.
Lastly, the Bible tells us in verse 47 that the Marys were there. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And the evangelist Mark and the other gospel accounts as well gives us this recollection that the women were there just to show you that this is authentic, to show you that the Word of God is trustworthy and true, can be trustworthy, is authoritative, to have women as the first people to come and discover the tomb was monumental and to say that they knew exactly where Jesus' tomb was. On that morning, the women didn't go to the wrong tomb. They knew where the body of Jesus was buried. But here is Joseph and the women, sad at the tomb, and I've often wondered, did they have any hope at all? As they were looking there, did they have any hope at all? Now we know as the reader, because hopefully you are a student of God's Word, this, uh, this literary device called dramatic irony. We as the reader, worshiper, we know how the story ends. You know how I know? Because we're here this morning. Every time we worship the Lord, the resurrection is engrafted in that. So that's how we know, right? We worship Jesus who is alive and evermore, forevermore. We as the reader and the worshiper, we know what is coming in just a few hours. That the Lord will rise in victory. And as the song the solid rock proclaims, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. The Apostle Paul wrote of this realized hope in the resurrection when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 what we call this resurrection creed. Beginning at verse 4, he said, He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And get this, he is still alive. And he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. And then he was seen by 500 brothers at, at, at one time. And most of them, he says, are still alive. When Paul wrote this, though some have died. Listen, folks, as I said at the beginning, God is not dead. And in this instance, as they are staring at the stone that had been rolled in front of that tomb, I imagine that all of the hopes of the disciples seemed to be trampled underfoot. It seemed like all hope was lost. When they left the foot of the cross, hope died there. Hope was put in the grave. Their hopes and their dreams and their faith seemed to be dashed in the tomb. Here is the very one that we thought could bring everlasting shalom. But we know that God is not dead. In an article entitled, When God Was Taken Captive, James Deloach, who was the pastor of Second Baptist Church of Houston, 1989, he was the pastor there, and he wrote in an article, and in this illustration, I would like to share this with you. Pastor James wrote, he said, I am not a connoisseur of great art. 
But from time to time, a painting or a picture will really speak a clear and strong message to me. Some time ago, I saw a picture of an old, burned-out mountain shack. And all that remained was the chimney, charred debris of what had been the family's sole possession. And in front of this destroyed home stood an old grandfather-looking man, dressed only in his underclothes with a small boy next to him, clutching a pair of patched overalls. It was evident that the child was crying. Beneath the picture were the words which the artist felt that the old man was speaking to the boy who was in tears. They were simple words, yet they presented a profound theology, a philosophy of life, And those words that were painted at the very base of this painting were simple. Hush, child, God ain't dead. Hush, child, God ain't dead. That vivid picture of that burned out mountain shack, and that old man, the weeping child, and the words, God ain't dead, Keep returning to my mind. Instead of being a reminder of despair of life, it has come to be a reminder of hope. And I don't know about you, but a pastor and a leader of my home in a world that is unraveling, I need reminders all the time that there is hope in this world. In the midst of all all of life's troubles, all of failures that we partake in often, I need mental pictures to remind me that all is not lost as long as God is alive and is in control of this world. Here lies hope. Here lies hope. Next week, Lord willing, we will see this hope realized and come alive in the Scriptures. Would you pray with me?